This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... GMing Drama System. Chandragupta Moria. Socially Conscious RPGs. And Michelangelo's Ransomed Correspondence. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The tap, tap, tap of a single die the slither of stones being slid back and forth across the tables, and the references to Deadwood instead of Monty Python tell us we've entered the drama system precincts of the gaming hut. And today in the drama system precincts, which you have to say drama system like that, (laughs) uh, Robin, you are going to share, because you are probably the single most experienced drama system GM, you're going to give us your tricks, including how not to say drama system all the time. Right, and also that that die is just a paperweight, because... Drama system does use dice. It uses, Even in uh, the that's right, cards. It's the flip of a card. You flip oh, a card, and oh, uh, maybe I, a few tokens. That shows how unsuited I am to to lead this. How mired in the old paradigm you've become. So we recently had a groovy uh, Hill Folk sale on the bundle of holding and sold a crazy number of copies. So I figured it's a good time uh, if you may be reintroducing yourself or introducing yourself to Hill Folk and Drama System to uh, loop back to that as a topic and. Uh, look at different uh, tips and tricks to play it as a GM. Because it is a story-based game, 
there has been a desire on the part of some people to say, well, do you really need a GM? Can we play it GMless? And it would require a pretty solid redesign that is beyond my can in order to do that, because I think that the GM is, although given a very subtle role in this, where you intervene a lot less in the action than you would in uh, a lot of traditional role-playing games, that that need for targeted intervention is part of the fun in a couple of ways. One, uh, it requires way less prep time and way less mental energy to run a great session of a drama system than a more traditional role-playing session. But that doesn't mean that you have nothing to do. So, for example, you play all of the supporting characters who you may choose to introduce into the narrative and have a player confronted by the desires of a supporting character. Or what's even more fun is that the players will sometimes create a character to go interact with. And so you, on the spot, have to figure out how to play that character in an interesting way. And it's not a character who, uh, when they appear for the first time, is in your notes in any way, nothing you've prepared to play, but you're uh, on the spot. And all of a sudden, you have to be the a bandit leader from the tribe across the way, or as was recently happened in the game that I'm running for my group right now, which is uh, Alma Mara Magica, in which you play sort of the, the disappointed uh, middle-aged people who, as a teenage wizard, saved the world back at their alma mater. Um, <laughs> suddenly, uh, you'll be hit with, okay, I want to go, uh, I'm a guidance counselor at the school, and I want to talk to the uh, the mummy who's being bullied by his uh, classmates, and so all of a sudden you have to come up with a cool way to, to play this uh, mummy character. Uh, so, Ken, uh, what is your experience having been GM'd in Drama System? Uh, my experience in being GM'd in Drama System is that the GM is not as often the source of drama as your fellow players are. So, in a, in a regular, in a, in a more normal, straightforward type game, uh, your fellow players are broadly telling the same story that you're telling and moving things in the same direction as you. They may try and backstab you and take your uh, potion of healing, but by and large, they're doing sort of the same thing that you're doing. Whereas in drama system, everyone deliberately, by design, has their own agendas and their own polls. And so paying attention to the GM is less important, ironically, than paying attention to the other players. The GM sort of acts more as a balancer, as a way to keep the story boiling without boiling over. And I think that that, that rhythm as a player is uh, interesting enough that as a GM, I would think that would be the difficult part, not necessarily the, the improv, because improv is something that could happen in, in any straightforward sort of game. But the, the fact that you've got to keep an eye on the interpersonal goals. And again, as opposed to a normal game where you can always throw in an orc attack to focus everybody in a drama system game, you may not want to focus everyone. You want to defocus people sometimes, right? Right. And what focus, I think, means in drama system is to get people to pay attention to the scene at hand and make sure that the scene is going somewhere so that you are kind of a, a coach sitting and listening and possibly waiting to intervene in a scene that may be playing out between two players. So one of the things that can happen in any session, of course, is that people can get lost in side banter and jokes. And what can sometimes happen in drama system and is uh, okay up to a point is that the peanut gallery, the players who are not current, whose characters are not in the scene will toss in little quips and uh, responses and stuff. And in that case, they're 
acting as the audience, and it's important to allow them to do that so that they remain engaged and don't just check out and you know start looking at something on their uh, phone or reading a comic book or whatever. But you need to keep that as a GM within manageable limits so that an imaginary scene between characters that aren't there doesn't break out in the middle of the real scene that's really happening. So you uh, kind of have to be very sensitive to that. And also when people are making jokes out of character and get off track and, you know, the standard thing in any game where suddenly everybody starts talking about last night's episode of Game of Thrones, there has to be someone in drama system to keep that under control. And in a, if you were to find a GMless version of that, I think that you would start drifting a lot more. A more specific way that as GM you have to be alert to people's focus is to make sure that the even when the scene is being played out between uh, two characters, and for people completely unfamiliar with drama system, the way it works is a, each session is sort of built up over a number of scenes, and each player in turn calls what the scene is, so that I may uh, come to you as you're the university administrator, and I am uh, hoping for more funding for my project, and I'm coming to you and wanting to get that. And really, emotionally, uh, what lies beyond that practical request is my desire for your approval. So if I was playing out a scene with you, I'd be tr using all sorts of different uh, tactics to persuade you to give me the funding and hence your emotional support. And you would either, as another player, decide to, uh, after a while, either uh, grant that petition or to reject that petition. And if you rebuff the other uh, player, you have to pay them a uh, drama token, or a dr drama token is paid to them from the kitty if you don't have one. But, however, if you do give in to them, you get a drama token. So what can happen is that sometimes a scene will just sort of devolve into kind of aimless riffing, as sometimes uh, verbal members of our geek tribe are kind of want to do, that they're kind of exploring all the ideas and edges of, you know, exactly what does it mean to ask for funding at a magical university and leaving behind forward momentum or raising the stakes or addressing the emotional point behind all of that. So as a GM, you kind of want to be alert to whether it is just sort of whether the scene is going anywhere. And if it's not, you just sort of uh, pop in and say, OK, raise the stakes um, or, you know, some other direction like that or you know get to the point or whatever it is uh, you want to do it in a supportive way one of the ways you can sort of tell that you need to do this is a you're getting kind of bored and b the other players who aren't in the scene are getting bored because a drama system only works if the players are interested in scenes that they're not in the reason you're interested in those scenes is because it's going to affect you next and what those two players are deciding to do and the outcome of their interaction is going to ripple into your agenda and what the next one of them comes to ask you for what you go to ask them for is going to have uh, an impact but after a point if nothing seems relevant to you you're going to tune out so as gm your goal then is to notice that and kind of act as a film editor in the first draft of an improvised film that will later be cut down so I think that's one of the sort of real challenges to being a GM is to know when to move the scene along, uh, because obviously the game is not about milking every last drop from the scene. The game is about establishing these emotional truths and then ideally moving on to the next scene, right? Because otherwise it becomes flabby and people begin to engage in a bit of a one-upmanship. Oh, you took 
uh, six minutes, I can take eight minutes for my drama type stuff. Is there a is there a, a best practices way to uh, tell people? I think we've resolved this. Move along, or is that you just say? I think we've resolved this. Move along. What I generally tend to say, and and it's true that uh, much more so than say in a TV episode, because a it's unedited, and b you're making it up as you go along, and also because once as you suggest. Uh, Sometimes when people have the spotlight, they're reluctant to give it up. So sometimes you will have a scene that goes on for six to eight minutes. And as a GM, when you start to wrap it up, they'll be, oh, wait a minute, I didn't get to this and this. Well, you should have either gotten to that or hold on to that for next time. Uh, because if you look at an episode of a, one of the serialized TV dramas that Drama System is meant to evoke, you can see that those scenes are often pretty short. And quite often they end without it being clear which way the a grantor character who's being presented with a petition is going to go, and then it's only revealed later which way they decide. So the way to subtly move that along is just to say, okay, did you get what you wanted? Now, sometimes the player will still go, oh, wait a minute, just a sec. Uh, sometimes a player will have such a great line that would obviously in a TV show be the end of a scene, and other players will even jump in and say, oh, that has to be the end of the scene. And again, sometimes you have to use your a judgment as to whether the player has really gotten to the nub of the scene or not, or in fact, if it should continue to go on. But if you find yourself as a player, to just switch focus for a sec, uh, in drama system, continually getting to the end of a scene and not having gotten to the point, the answer there is find and get to the point faster. <laughs> and as a, as a GM, when I'm playing uh, characters, obviously the supporting characters, their role it's usually to increase the tension and increase the stakes. Uh, sometimes it's to lessen the tension, but that's much less the case. And uh, my characters uh, are very, very persuasive because they get to the point right away and they keep going after the point in the scene. And that's something that, you know, actors are trained to do is to find what their character's tactic is and really go after it aggressively. So as a player, if you find your scenes are kind of a little uh, shapeless, that's a thing to remind yourself of, you know, what do I really want and how am I going about getting it? All right. So the other sort of thing that's going on in a drama system game is because you go around the table and everyone gets to call a scene, you don't have the problem necessarily that, uh, you know, one player sort of takes center spotlight all the time. But what's the opposite problem? How do you draw out a player who either hasn't thought about their character or doesn't know what they want to do or just doesn't really want to take the spotlight when it comes around to them? Are there are there sort of, you know, ways to work with them as the GM to help them through that? Uh, do you, if you've thought of something, is there a way to feed that idea to them? Or is that a no-no? That's a never do that. Um, it is sometimes, uh, sometimes you, a player will be stumped when the, uh, their calling order comes along to them. One thing I always try to do when I'm uh, moving on to one player is I will then remind them who the next two people in the order are because it's not necessarily seating order in the room. And so, uh, but often the typical pattern in a drama system session is the first little while the scenes are sort of kind of floaty and kind of recapitulating the previous episode and you kind of wonder when it's going to kick in and then it kicks in hard and all of a sudden the plot moves really, really quickly. And, and because if you're playing a three or four hour session and there's very little sort of filler in a drama system game. You don't have the two-hour fight taking up two hours of time so that the plot development uh, can move, you know, to be like two or three episodes of a cable drama worth of stuff. And so it can happen that a player may be caught flat-footed because so much has changed 
even since the previous two scenes, uh, that they might not know what they want to do. And so when that happens, you kind of coach them a bit. And sometimes you're just sort of talking at them while they take a moment for things to click in and your suggestions aren't what help them click in, uh, but rather you uh, are just sort of uh, guiding them through. Okay, so what is it that your character wants now is the big question. And and then who would you go to get that from? And uh, you can even use the uh, Hilk Folk cards that we made as part of the original Kickstarter campaign and are uh, going to be made available or maybe are already available as printable PDFs. And those all have little scene triggers on them that both have a possible external situation that you that could come in and complicate things or an emotional thing that you could uh, go for. So you draw a random card and it says, seek an apology. Or, you know, uh, or you can turn that on its head and say, okay, it's time to go give an apology. So all of those things are triggers to help you uh, if you are not a player who easily sees this as spotlight. And there's still the prospect of running a procedural scene in which you face an external obstacle and use the system's very simple, abstract way of dealing with those scenes, because whether you win or lose, that will then change the situation, and that will then somehow things will be different for you the next time. So recently a player was kind of stumped and said, okay, well, it's time for the car chase where the troll assassin uh, comes at us on the streets of Amsterdam, and because they uh, lost the procedural, which happens a lot more in drama system deliberately because uh, drama is uh, more about failure than than it is about success, then he found himself chained up in a container being interrogated by a French elf, and that wound up with a situation that then gave him grist uh, for an entire upcoming session, and the next session he didn't have to ever face a mystery as to what he was going to do because his situation had changed so much as a result of that procedural scene. Another thing that you sometimes find yourself doing as a drama system GM is what I call fills, where you are listening to a scene play out mostly as dialogue, and then you just sort of pop in a little visual detail or two that kind of focuses the theme or just uh, it's kind of fun and and interesting. And so you can sort of act as the set designer or the cinematographer and and give people a, a visual of what's going on that kind of cues them back into something that is often pretty dialogue driven. And then uh, finally, one thing you always want to be doing as a GM is looking for callbacks, is looking for plot elements that were set up in previous episodes and have been dropped for a while. And then just like a serialized show, all of a sudden, uh, this element that was mentioned in the first episode, but they didn't get to it because they went in another direction. Now that's something that comes back. So uh, if you're ever stumped, which is something that you probably rarely will be as a GM because you can, you're kind of acting as the uh, gestalt on behalf of the entire uh, audience. But if you're ever stumped, just ask yourself, well, what's the thing we didn't pick up on from episode one, two, or three? And that's where you can bring in an NPC to to drive that kind of story, right? Exactly. And uh, so if you just keep a list of all the... Um, quite often you'll have a list of NPCs and or supporting players, as they're called in the drama system, and you will have a couple of them that come up a lot and that the characters seek out to interact with. And then there's a sort of an outer layer of other characters who have been mentioned once or twice. And so you can always uh, elevate one of the... If you need variety, you just elevate one of those... Uh, deeper into whatever the main plot line is at the point, and then that can re-energize things as well. 
Okay. Um, I think that we have... I have petitioned and you have granted, so you get the little stone, and it is time now for us to transition to the next hut. This episode is also brought to you by OdysseyCon 15. Madison, Wisconsin's very own OdysseyCon 15 takes place from April 10th to the 12th, 2015. At the Crown Plaza Hotel. Featuring literary guest of honor, Jonathan Mabry. Literary guest of honor, Heather Brewer. Literary and game design guest of honor, Matt Forbeck. That's twice as good a guest of honor. Four full tracks of panels, writing craft, literature, gaming, and media. Or check out the art show. Benefit auction. The Bluebeard Comedy Show. Cosmo Joe's Spray Paint Art Demos. Weather permitting. D&D Adventurers League games. Pathfinder Society events. Open tabletop gaming. Zombie prom. Full service con suite. And miniatures paint and take. Robin, both you and I have done the guest thing at Odyssey Con. Uh, yeah, I'd really recommend, uh, as I depart from the script, that anyone who wants to go should go, because it's a well-run, relaxed show with a lot of great programming. And also, the con works really hard, I think, to make the guests available to the fans, but also you can sort of just chill out and kind of move at your own speed. It kind of combines that good relaxicon quality of a good science fiction con with the full plate of possibility that a good gaming or, or multimedia con does. They've sort of managed to thread that needle, I think. So if you're within driving distance of Madison and wondering whether you should head on out... You definitely should. Find out more at odysseycon.org. The globe is spinning backwards. We are hurtling into the recesses of time where we are going to find ourselves in the ancient confines of the History Hut. And Ken, you want to lay on us the 101 on a really important figure in early Indian history, and that's Chandra Gupta Maurya. This is from the 3rd century BC, and he was, I guess, the uh, conqueror who first took all the disparate elements of what we think today as India and uh, assembled them together into a puzzle by conquering almost all of them. Ken, why do you want to talk to us about this important figure? Uh, first of all, 4th century, not so much 3rd century, he uh, begins his reign in 322 BC, the year after Alexander the Great died. Uh, I think that, by and large, people should know about Chandragupta Maurya because India is one of the three or four most important countries in the world. And it is remarkably little known here in the English-speaking world, given that it is part of the English-speaking world. So the more we know about India, I think the better off we are as, as global citizens. Also, India... Uh, before you go on, is for those of us who uh, for which it is a lacuna in our knowledge, is there a sort of a go-to introductory readable history of India that you would recommend as a starting point? Um, I think that for the sort of immediate go-to you might want to look at uh, John Key's History of India. It's called India, a History, which implies that he is putting all of the meat on the inside, not so much on the cover. But he is a expert on Indian history, primarily, obviously, as most people are, the later part of Indian history once Europeans start touching it. And that's because of the freak of Indian historiography, which is that Indian records were mostly kept on palm leaves, not on parchment or vellum or something that doesn't disintegrate in Indian climate as rapidly. And so you wind up with 
very little that is solidly known, very little in the terms of Indian histories from their contemporaneous time, the way that we do for that era in uh, classical Europe, for example, where their they're writing Herodotus stuff was writing on leaves. On, so. uh, yes, exactly. Their Herodotuses and Arians and everybody were writing on leaves. And so you wind up, the sources for Chandragupta Maurya, for example, are primarily medieval Indian uh, stories about Chandragupta Maurya, some of which may be accurate, some of which may not, but it's as though we only had the Alexander romances of the medi of medieval Europe to tell us about Alexander. And the other source for Chandragupta Maurya is the Greek historians, because the first thing Chandragupta Maurya did is conquer the chunk of India that Alexander had conquered from India, conquer it right back, although not technically back because it wasn't his either, but uh, he took it away from Alexander's uh, satraps right after Alexander died, and then beat Alexander's uh, later successor, Seleucus, in battle, uh, and rather than continue the war after taking a huge amount of pretty much <laughs> wasteland uh, from Seleucus on the boundary, he gave Seleucus a marriage alliance and 500 elephants, which Seleucus used to beat uh, Antigonus later on and become uh, the head of what became the Seleucid Empire. And without those elephants, it might have been the Antigonid Empire. Right, and the Greeks remember him as Sandrocotus. Right, or Androcotus, depending on your source. But th that turns out to be one of the main uh, sources for Chandragupta Moria's reign is what we know from the Greeks, and later from the Romans. Uh, so... It's kind of an interesting whole. I mean, it, it really is as though the only thing that we knew about uh, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar was medieval legends about them. So everything that we think we know about Moria has to be sort of backstopped. Uh, we have coins. We have uh, stones that he set up to say, hey, guys, I conquered you. Behave. And we have legends that we can look back and say, this is probably true, just because it's repeated so many different places that it either comes from a, a common historical source or from a really, really popular version of the story uh, that he would have put about as imperial propaganda. So, so given that his narrative is legendary in large chunks, mm -hmm. what is that narrative? Uh, the basic narrative is that he is a young man of the Kshatriya uh, uh, caste, the warrior caste, who is made poor by the various wars on the border of India. This is the expansive Nanda Empire that basically controls the Ganges Valley and uh, bits of um, the, the sort of outlying western parts of India. And this in this war, he his family has been impoverished. He wanders west to get out of the Nanda country, and he meets this incredible foreign invader, Alexander the Great. And this is part of the... Um, uh, the uh, the Plutarch story of Alexander is that he met Andricotus or Sandricotus. And remember, the Romans don't have any reason to make that a big deal. They don't care who Alexander met or didn't meet. They're more interested that he met, you know, the various wise men and disputed with them in, uh, as an Aristotelian than they are that he met some teenager who later on became king of India. So this sounds like it's possibly... Moria propaganda, or might have even happened. I mean, if he's a warrior, the place warriors sort of are drawn to is war zones. Alexander the Great is a walking war zone, so they might have met. And Alexander was not in the practice of slaughtering everyone. He was trying to make as many local allies as he could. If Chandragupta is there saying, 
Uh, the Nanda Empire is ripe for an overthrow, and I'm just the guy to lead it. He might have even petitioned Alexander, you know, give me some troops, give me some money, I'll go conquer India for you. At this point, however, Alexander has been told in no uncertain terms by his army that we are only marching toward Greece, not away from Greece now. So he probably, you know, gave him the old, um, uh, uh, good for you, kid, you knock him dead, uh, tell him Alexander sent you, and continued on his way. Here's the ten tips of uh, successful empire builders. Exactly. Uh, catch on the flip side. Gave him, gave him an autographed copy of the Iliad and said, you too can be Achilles. Um, <laughs> and so uh, as a result of this, uh, the sort of the patriotic version of the legend is that Chandragupta was so angry that a non-Indian was invading that he resolved to build an India that could never, ever, ever be invaded by foreigners again, um, which I suppose he did briefly, but then not so much permanently. But he then rises up right after Alexander the Great dies, takes Alexander's Greek satrapies away on the east bank of the Indus, and then moves with that as his sort of base of power into the center of the Nanda Empire to overthrow it with the support of a guy named Chanakya, who is in sort of legend a great teacher, a great moral teacher, because you can't be just having a great general as your buddy, although I suspect that since he is still just a teenager, he probably has one or two great generals as well. Right. Well, it's the rules of dramatic foils, right? Exactly. He's already the general. You don't need, right. uh, I'm a general and here's my sidekick, also a general. You need, he's the man of action. So um, mythologically, you need the man of contemplation as his foil. Right. That's myth mythology 101. Exactly. And so with a dramatic foil and probably a number of older generals who have witnessed Alexander's uh, methods of warfare, they move in and very rapidly conquer the Nanda Empire. Uh, they basically take it down in, uh, what would that be? That would be about two years. They knock out India, which is kind of an argument that Alexander the Great could have done it if he'd wanted to, um, because as great as... Or, Chandra or if Gup his troops had wanted to. <laughs> or if his troops had wanted to. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I bet he did want to. <laughs> he really did want to. But it only took about two years for them to knock down Nanda, which either argues that Chandragupta is really, really good at conquering things, which is certainly one version of it, or that uh, the head of the Nanda Empire, uh, Dana Nanda, is a big jerk that everyone hates, which is the sort of morality version, that he's sort of the Robin Hood who's overthrowing the evil uh, sheriff of Pataliputra. Right. And often and in history, both things are true. Both things are true. He is both incompetent and cruel. <laughs> which is... Well, and also that the uh, the conqueror is is smart and that he happens to have noticed the weakness of his foe and taking exactly. advantage of it. So however it is, within um, two years, he takes over the capital city of Pataliputra, which is right there on the Ganges in sort of the middle of India, a little bit towards the east. And then the Nanda Empire just sort of falls to him. He doesn't have to do an awful lot of reconquering. So this is 321 BC. He is now 21 years old, and he runs pretty much all of India that is making money at this time. He's got the Greek bits, he, uh, the, or the, the parts that, uh, the, that Alexander took over. Then he takes over the Nanda Empire. Then he moves right back and starts taking over the rest of the Greek provinces until uh, Seleucus comes after him, and then they fight their war in 305 BC. So one assumes that he spent at least some amount of time reorganizing the Nanda Empire to be a functional state so that he can use the Indian natural advantages in manpower. Uh, the uh, Pliny, I think, says that uh, his army was 600,000 people. That's probably an exaggeration, but given India's population, it's probably uh, an exaggeration 
within the same um, order of magnitude. So he probably had maybe 100,000, 200,000 effectives that he could use for a war against the Greeks. And of course, Seleucus is fighting these wars with a hardcore of Greeks and a bunch of drafted Persians, and that is not necessarily going to uh, get him as far as it got Alexander. Right, and he's far from reinforcements and supply lines. Yes, very much so. Anyway, Chandragupta and Seleucus fight a a bunch of wars uh, over the next couple of years, and eventually um, Seleucus, not being an idiot, realizes that this guy is close to his supply lines, and there's much more dangerous stuff on the other end of Seleucus' empire. So if he makes peace with Chandragupta, he can go beat up uh, his rival Antigonus and uh, make sure that his empire continues, and that is indeed what he did. And Chandragupta likewise realized that he has more of India to conquer and less of Persia, because once again, if he goes over the Hindu Kush or over the Gidrosian Desert, his supply line becomes the problem. So as far as ancient warlords go, Chandragupta and Seleucus seem to have had a pretty mature relationship, and they, of course, sealed it with a marital alliance. Uh, Seleucus sends an ambassador, Megasthenes, whose history of India is lost, but was quoted by everyone who wrote about India afterwards. And so that's where we get a lot of information about the Mauryan Empire, is from Megasthenes' history of India, or the bits of it that uh, are lying around. And then Chandragupta begins going south and conquering uh, more parts of India down into the Ran of Kutch and down into the Deccan Plateau, and then marching down towards the remaining Tamil and Dravidian uh, parts of India. Exactly how far he got is probably an open question, because again, if you're an ancient king, you put up a, a, a monument saying, I conquered you as far as your soldiers got, not as far necessarily as the people who paid you taxes got. Um, now, he's also uh, another of the list of uh, sort of pivotal imperial figures who converts to uh, a religion or uses uh, religious conversion as uh, a means of uh, creating unity. And in this case, once he was, uh, I think, relatively well along in his uh, conquering, he adopted Jainism. Can you tell us about that? Basically, at the t- even at the time that Alexander is invading, there are uh, Brahmin ascetics, people who say that the course of the world should not be uh, warfare and battle and, and getting money. It should be turning away from all of those things, that you should be an ascetic. Chandragupta is later sort of written into the Sakya clan, which is supposedly Buddha's family, so as to sort of set up uh, his conversion to Jainism as actually a Buddhist act. Um, But at the time, it was probably uh, the sort of thing that, you know, he's, he's conquered all the worthwhile parts of India. Running India is probably a lot less fun. And even uh, the biographers of Alexander say that he was tempted by asceticism, and there seems to be that sort of impulse, and certainly there seems to be that impulse within his family, given uh, that his grandson, Ashoka, is the most famous guy who converts and doesn't uh, conquer things anymore. Uh, so he um, uh, he probably saw that as, as an attraction and either announced that he was doing it as an excuse for why he's not going to conquer the parts of India that are covered in jungle and don't actually make as much money as the parts that he already owns, or he has a genuine conversion experience, because, again, obviously, India is the kind of place that that happens a great deal. And certainly in that uh, sort of, um, what do I want to say, religious milieu that that's all being churned around uh, even then. I mean, this is, this is when Hinduism is beginning to be sort of formed as we understand it. It's just after the Vedas have been written down. And so I think that there's probably an awful lot of philosophical 
uh, tumult and turmoil going on in India that, uh, that, that a guy like Chandragupta Maurya, who was already very much exposed to a bunch of different worldviews, might, um, uh, might take more seriously than we think uh, a later-day politician does. Now, I know there's a, an Indian historical epic film about Ashoka. Does uh, Maurya appear in uh, Indian pop culture? Um, there have been movies about uh, Chandragupta Maurya in Bollywood, or uh, actually, I think, in Tollywood tradition. There's a Telugu uh, film about him from 1977, uh, but I don't believe that there that he has the same sort of um, uh, of big impression as Ashoka, first of all, because he starves himself to death, which probably isn't very cinematic. Well, and, tell us about that. What, what happened there? Well, that's, there? that's part of the, the, the ultimate sort of version of, of Jainism, is that if you don't do any harm to any living thing, um, you can't eat because you're eating living things. And so he fasts himself to death uh, to sort of arrive at the purest um, uh, communion with uh, with uh, the good, uh, speaking philosophically. Well, that, that certainly speaks to his conversion as obviously being uh, a uh, sincere transformation rather than any, anything done uh, for purposes of political unity because uh, generally people who are uh, using faith to further temporal objectives don't take it that far. Yeah. And again, I mean, this is what we have from a medieval record. This is not something that we have currently, and the medieval records in this particular case are written by Jains, so it is not 110% certain that that's what happened. He might have relinquished the throne because he thought that Bindusara should be given a chance to run things while he was still there to keep an eye on it, uh, like the latter-day Roman emperors did. Uh, he might have uh, relinquished the throne out of religious, uh, it, uh, genuine religious instinct, and then just died of something, and the Jains put about that he had uh, deliberately fasted himself to death. Or he might have deliberately fasted himself to death because, again, that is a thing that Jain devotees did. And if you're the kind of guy who looks at India as a unemployed teenager and says, I could conquer this, you might be the kind of guy who looks at the ultimate Jain spiritual discipline and says, I could conquer that. Um, and so I don't, I don't rule it out, but again, it's not the same thing as an attested historical record, uh, a religious legend. Uh, that said, I mean, if you listen to the medieval romance of Alexander, Alexander was Christian, which uh, I think we can rule out. <laughs> yes, we, we have some more documentary evidence. Yes, we have way. one or two pieces of data that, that indicate otherwise. Uh, that said, he does abdicate in favor of his son, Bindusara. He does join, uh, or at least uh, encourage the, the Jain religious community, and he does die... Um, uh, relatively young, um, uh, and that implies either disease or fasting, rather than by uh, by being poisoned by, by an oyster, being poisoned the way all by the somebody, Roman yes, uh, right. emperors uh, did yeah. it, uh, conveniently placed poison oyster. Yeah, so so I think that that's certainly a possibility. And again, we do know that Ashoka, his uh, his his more glamorous grandson, uh, when he converted to Buddhism, had a, a similarly uh, radical uh, religious reorientation, although he didn't go so far as to uh, commit Buddhist suicide uh, that I know of. So I guess this will uh, leave us all uh, hungering for someone with the deep knowledge of uh, Indian history and culture to come along and uh, present us with an exciting tabletop role-playing game that uh, does it right and uh, introduces us to the possibilities to uh, pop-culturize all of this uh, myth and history. But uh, until then, I think we're uh, on our way to understanding this... Uh, really interesting, uh, rich field of history that we haven't explored very much. 
Remember when we were riffing scenarios about eggshells and fairies a few episodes back? I remember it like it was February 20th. If only we had known of the small folk. This new Wainscot urban fantasy RPG is by veteran designer Phil Masters. Co-author of the Discworld and Hellboy role-playing games. That's two separate games, not a combo game. And a lot of other stuff. Uh, what, the listener may ask, is a Wainscot fantasy? That means it's set in a society hidden alongside the regular human world. Your characters live literally hidden in the walls and under the floorboards of the human world. The small folk, descendants of the fairy folk of legend, just two to four inches tall after all. Use stealth, cunning, and magic to survive and prosper while engaging in rivalry and very small-scale politics. The game uses a customized version of the popular Fate Rules Engine. Take your pick of seven different small folk cliques from aggressive goblins. To managerial brownies or technophile gremlins. Or the cliqueless, because some people just have to be different. Choose from an array of skills and magic powers. Personalize your character with unique aspects and stunts. And then get out there and get underfoot. All the while watching out for cats, rats, hawks, mousetraps, owls, ferrets. To grab this 116-page PDF, creep under the floorboards at Warehouse 23 and search for The Small Folk. That's Warehouse23.com. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Ryan Christensen asks Ken and Robin to what extent could or should RPGs be used to raise social consciousness and what are the pitfalls. Uh, I think that the pitfall begins with the uh, great apocryphal Goldwynism. Movies are for entertainment. If you want to send a message, call Western Union. And I think that that is the great danger of using a game for something more akin to a lecture that you wind up with a lecture instead of anything fun. And I think that you can compare the, say, um, uh, audience for lectures versus the audience for games and uh, get an idea of how much more effective it is if you keep your game a game as opposed to an outline of the way things ought to should be. Robin, what do you think uh, about uh, RPGs as social consciousness? Well, the term social consciousness implies that this is a question directed to my side of the aisle <laughs> rather than yours. Uh, I don't know what they call it over in Republican land. Is it like uh, getting the message out or calling Frank Luntz to get a focus group together? What's the? Is there even an equivalent approach? So... If you are looking to specifically raise consciousness on the progressive side of things, I think that role-playing games in particular do offer something very powerful in contrast to the way that politics are usually argued. The more we learn about the way that people form their political allegiances and then maintain them once formed suggests that the discourse of argument, uh, particularly of presenting people who don't yet agree with you with things that are outside of their frame of reference, uh, that they will, uh, uh, no matter how gently that is done, and of course it is not often done gently, or not always done gently, I should say. <laughs> I think not often is um, uh, justifiable by the numbers. <laughs> right. Um, that sort of uh, attaches, uh, often attaches what I think is a correct uh, analysis of uh, the world we live in in terms of uh, privilege and groups that are excluded with an emotional dynamic that is uh, almost guaranteed to fail because uh, people do not uh, generally revise their emotional allegiances based on being confronted with something outside of those allegiances, but instead they get a big dopamine hit 
from finding a way to stick to what they already uh, believe. But what role-playing does in particular, and even other games don't, is that it invites you to play a role other than your own. And the way that I think people do switch their uh, social uh, or policy allegiances comes more from empathy rather than being confronted by competing frames of reference. So if you uh, sit down and read a role-playing book and don't even necessarily play it, but read something that invites you to empathize uh, with a group that you are not normally uh, aware of or disposed to empathize with or to understand their situation, that I think that that can be much more powerful. So uh, when you get uh, something like Julia Ellen Bowes' uh, Steal Away Jordan, which presents 19th century slave narratives and invites you to enter that world, I think that does a lot more to activate people's sense of empathy and get over the kind of defensive barriers that I think we build up as, as members of group identification. And as we sort of learn more about political decision-making and group identification, we're discovering that it is very hard cooked in a lot of situations, but then can become fluid and that the uh, extent of that fluidity is due to empathy. And for example, I think the uh, apparently rapid change in attitudes towards gay marriage, for example, uh, is first of all the result of decades and decades of lobbying and people positioning themselves and making the argument. And then all of a sudden, uh, a tipping point was reached where enough people knew somebody who they suddenly didn't see as the other, but saw as part of their own group, that this uh, shift has sort of uh, seems to have occurred very rapidly. And that if you're interested in raising social consciousness, perhaps a better goal to have in mind is how do I create social empathy? So if you want to design a tabletop game that advances whatever agenda you might have, the question is how do I create something that engenders empathy? The pitfall there is that in order for it to be interesting and not to violate Samuel Goldwyn's law, as previously articulated, is that it can't just be an editorial that lays out your position and leaves no room for the opposite position, but you may have to allow uh, the GM, if not the players, or, uh, or possibly some of the players, to play characters who have political viewpoints inimical to yours, and you have to be able to allow people to empathize with them as well and see them as human so that what comes out of it is an emotional drama of people interacting across a political barrier uh, rather than an editorial about who's right and who's wrong. And that is, I think, the failing of a lot of uh, political filmmaking and, and theater is that there is no dramatic tension in them because the uh, author is so clearly on one side that it's no longer a drama, it just becomes a melodrama. And that's where you absolutely fall into the trap that Ken was describing. Well, I think that melodrama obviously has its place in changing people's minds and at least opening people up to the nature of a struggle. I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin famously both in, in inspired a lot of anti-abolitionist sentiment in the North and is also hugely melodramatic. Uh, so I don't think yes. that you can say that the one does not work. I mean, yes, there and may another be... counterexample is Philadelphia, 
which right. I thought was a terrible, you know, was a terrible it, it, it film compared to Jonathan Demme's <laughs> other films, yeah. but had a huge measurable positive impact in the world. So I guess I'm the dummy in that uh, parable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> making the, making the selfish argument that, uh, social consciousness movies should be good movies. I think that just betrays your elitist, uh, privileged agenda that you'd only want to see good movies. Um, I think that we can look at games, I mean, we can look at it from a couple of directions, right? Because there is the point where you are deliberately saying, I want to make sure that people are allowed to play all kinds of different characters and empathize with all kinds of different characters because my game is about reaching agreement across various artificial or social barriers. But conversely, there are other sorts of games or the same sort of games where the agreement you want them to reach may not be in the direction that uh, the faultless progressive uh wishes, the agreement you may want them to reach is, oh, right, there are real uh, vampires out there, and they just have to be killed by people who are outside uh, public view and recourse. So you could look at Knight's Black Agents, and on the one hand, you say, well, they're going after established um, uh, figures of power, uh, therefore it's obviously a progressive um, anti uh, uh, globalist game. But on the other hand, you look at Knights Black Agents and say, well, who's doing the agenting? It's people who are uh, self-declared uh, units of deadly force. So maybe the game is actually about, you know, sort of the, um, uh, the war in the shadows and how if we study uh, the war on terror, then we weaken the war on terror. And, and so you can sort of, I, I deliberately wrote Knights Black Agents, obviously, with a lot of anti um uh, uh war on terror and a lot of anti and a lot of pro war on terror media and I deliberately combined them so that the political message you bring out of Knights Black Agents a lot of times is going to depend not on me the designer but on you the GM or maybe even on you the bunch of players right. because, because it, setting up attention to explore trusts the players to encounter this information and come to the right conclusion, which mm -hmm. I, I think that if, if you really want to change people's minds, you do have to trust them and accept that uh, inevitably some people who you probably could never reach anyway are going to be pushed in the opposite direction by what you do. But mm -hmm. that will be much, much, much more effective to uh, persuade people if you lead them to their own epiphany rather than uh, sticking it in their ear. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, and again, I mean, the, the, obviously, uh, Ayn Rand's fiction persuaded an awful lot of people to be uh, Randian, despite the fact that, A, it's terrible, and it does, B, everything that we say that you shouldn't do. It's nothing but didactic lectures by characters, and in fairness, some page-turning uh, violence and sex. But the goal, I think, for a role-playing game has to begin at not necessarily encouraging empathy qua empathy, but encouraging productive play, which by and large usually means identifying with your character, working with your fellow players. And those two goals can be pointed at a, uh, a, a sort of um, socially conscious goal, or they can be pointed at the perfectly uh, Republican goal of killing enemies and getting rich. <laughs> um, and so I don't, I don't necessarily say that an RPG by, by dint of, of creating this empathy that you talk about is necessarily going to um, be creating a, a, a progressive social consciousness. And I think that the closer you get to trying to create a progressive social consciousness, the more you have to be Julia Ellingbo 
uh, who is a great designer, or the more you have to be presenting a really one-sided problem like slavery. I mean, I don't think that in the entire country there are anybody who's going to play Steal Away Jordan who began pro-slavery, and then at the end is like, well, I'm, I'm yes. now I'm against if, slavery. If you're, if you're one of that revanchous <laughs> horde, you're not going to pick you're up not going to be playing player. the game in the first place. But I think that what you do get because the game is so good is, as you say, empathy. But you reach a historical empathy for the enslaved, and maybe you pull that forward and you say, well, that was pretty god awful. I'll bet having that in your historical memory has god awful effects nowadays. And ha- being uh, conversely having the historical memory of having been the GM uh, and the sort of the, this, the the symbolic slave owner gives you ideally some uncomfortable frisson with your own, by and large, uh, white privilege. Uh, and that, I think, is Julia's goal, is to create a, not necessarily an empathy qua empathy that, oh, now I understand slavery is bad, but a shared experience. And I think that is a lot harder to do. And I think that you, even in the story game field, you have to be a lot better at it uh, than most people are to make it work, right? Yes, this is certainly a... Yeah, changing the world through role-playing games is, is an <laughs> order... Several orders of magnitude more difficult than creating a room with some cool traps in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and then I guess before we uh, exit this segment, we should also acknowledge that within something that is just supposed to be pop cultural entertainment and it's first and third and fourth goals are not uh, any sort of social awareness, that you can still try to put things in the corners that enable people who feel that they have not been represented enough to see themselves reflected in something and hopefully encourage people from different backgrounds to go, hey, we can do this too, but let's create our own thing based on, on our own experiences. So uh, a lot of, you know, behind the scenes of the art direction of Feng Shui, for example, has been, you know, trying to make sure that we represent a whole range of different types of people and people who you don't normally see in, in that context. Or the, and, or the famous um, uh, gender fluidity box that in the new Dungeons & Dragons, where they say you can be uh, a, a gay elf or a straight elf, you can be a girl dwarf with a beard, you can be all kinds of whatever you want to be, knock yourself out, it's a fantasy game, go nuts. Right, and sort of the, the less you talk about that and the more you just make it part of the world, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I'm reluctant to be talking about it now, the, uh, the, the better it, <laughs> you know, the better... You'll show the your hand, is. Robin. Yeah, um, well, or just, you, you know, you especially if, if you are uh, an old white dude, you don't want to be patting yourself on the back all the time for, yeah. for trying to do that. You should just do it and shut up about it, which I guess is my way of saying it's time for the next segment. <laughs> The dark, concrete stairs lead us down into a dimly lit cafe in one corner. An alien reptoid sucks on the brain of a weather fanatic. In the corner, there's a replica of the Bohemian Grove Owl. We have entered the terrifying and paranoid precincts of Conspiracy Corner. And this week, we're going to ask ourselves the real story behind a story that has bubbled up into the news. Uh, the Vatican has been uh, held for ransom for the return of two uh, handwritten documents by Michelangelo. Uh, these were stolen in 1997. Uh, these are 
rare uh, in particular because uh, Michelangelo uh, dictated most of his correspondence, I assume while lying upside down, painting <laughs> something with uh, uh, oil paint dripping into his eyes. Uh, but these are actual... Uh, Should I put that part of, about your back in? No, that was just no, me bitching. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what about that thing about forced perspective? No, no, shut up. Um, so they've asked for a hundred thousand euros to to get these back, and uh, according to the story as we understand it, these somehow refer to uh, the construction of uh, St. Peter's Basilica and or the Sistine Chapel, which would make sense as as to why the Vatican would have had these letters from uh, Michelangelo. Uh, for all we know, they're uh, basically invoices. Mm -hmm. uh, the Historical correspondence of uh, great figures in cultural production are often complaints about money. But uh, this story, uh, Dan Brown has not uh, written it yet, and uh, we need to, without uh, uh, venturing into the dread waters of uh, anti-Catholic conspiracy, uh, noodle out what the true reality behind this uh, uh, interesting but uh, not necessarily uh, earth shaking story on the uh, surface would be. I have to credit uh, David Dunham for bringing this to my attention. So, Ken, what conspiratorial corners do you wish to explore here in Conspiracy Corner? Well, once you start talking about your Renaissance artists, uh, the first thing that you always look for is the marks of the Priore de Sion, the uh, sneaky bunch of Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and his holy seed is ruling us all from behind the scenes as the European Union guys that were made up almost entirely out of whole cloth by a couple of unemployed documentary makers in the 1970s, the parts that were not created by a angry surrealist who is no longer a angry young surrealist. Um, and so I like the Priore de Sion because it is a great deal of fun because it involves art history and other recondite things instead of just a lot of boring uh, ra radar reflections. Um, and so you begin with Michelangelo with the observation that even people at the time made, which is that if the Pieta is supposed to be Mary holding the dead Jesus, that Mary seems awfully young to be holding dead Jesus because she should be in her 50s and the woman in the Pieta is obviously in her 20s. And so even back in the day, people asked Michelangelo what the hell he thought he was doing with that. And his answer was, she is symbolically young because she is a virgin. And that is why she looks like she's 20. Also, and also I know about glam, baby. <laughs> right. And also, hello, Michelangelo. Um, but the argument that your Priore de Sionists make is that that is supposed to be uh, Mary Magdalene holding her husband Jesus as he dies. And that that is why uh, the Pieta was done, was as a secret symbol of uh, Sionism. Uh, Michelangelo was part of the architectural team that worked on St. Pe uh, uh, Peter's Basilica. And so he would have had uh, the ability to insert um, uh, sacred geometry into the, into the work. Um, he was uh, trained by uh, Kabbalists and Jewish rabbis who were experts in uh, math at the time. In the courts of the Medicis, he had access to lots of magic books that the Medicis had gotten from the fall of Byzantium and were keeping around. Um, he had sort of a fraught relationship with the Medicis. Uh, he liked them better than he liked uh, the Della Rovere's, who are the, um, uh, the the family of popes that employed him to paint the ceiling. And which... t tensions with one one's employers are a, also a common theme in the history of uh, cultural uh, producers. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I hate my employer and I want money are uh, sort of the, the themes that you get out of a lot of these guys. Uh, there is an interesting sort of side note 
that uh, if you look for pictures of human organs, you can find them snuck into the Sistine Chapel. For example, God's throat uh, in uh, the Sistine Chapel contains a human brain and brain stem, implying that Michelangelo was off dissecting corpses and painting his anatomical discoveries into the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And whether uh, you believe that guy or not is another question, but you can certainly make a couple of arguments. First, the sort of Gnostic argument that God's uh, throat is actually a brain, that the uh, that the mind is the key organ of receiving God's will, not the heart or the soul. Um, so that would be a, a heretical argument, and of course you're not supposed to be cutting up corpses anyway for a more pragmatic uh, secret message conspiracy thing. Right, so for this to be of some uh, great significance, it probably isn't a letter going, oh, no, it's just a coincidence that that looks like a brain? Uh I, I wasn't thinking, that's just sort of stippling with the light. I can yeah. see why you, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll paint that over in the final version. Don't worry about that. And how do you know it's a brain? What have you been doing? Cutting yeah. up corpses. <laughs> yeah, let's not make this about me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're torturers. We know what human brains look like. All right, fair cop. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's there's also a lot of stuff that if you, uh, as they restored um, the ceiling of the uh, of the Sistine Chapel, they have noticed that there are more, uh, Judaic elements in it uh, than we had thought. So, for example, they thought that it was the Alpha and Omega over Jesus, but it's actually an Aleph and an Ayin, not the, the the Alpha and Omega. So that's... So that's it's Hebrew, not Greek. It's Hebrew, not Greek. And so uh, Michelangelo is at the very least part of this uh, movement that eventually becomes Calvinism to go back to the Old Testament and say, let's just you know remember that without the Jews, there's no Jesus. And I, I think that uh, that Judaizing movement within the church is something that he begins to move toward. And also, um, apparently, he had, I don't want to say Gnostic tendencies, but he began, <laughs> given his fraught relationship with the Vatican uh, hierarchy, he certainly began to believe that there has to be a better way to get access to Jesus than listening to the Pope yell at you all the time. Um, since he literally had the Pope yell at him all the time. An extreme version of getting notes from your uh, exactly. executive producer. <laughs> so, he, so he may have been led into uh, anti-clericalism at the very least, and possibly therefore some sort of proto-Protestantism uh, rather than uh, Gnosticism, in the sense that uh, the Orthodox Church, as Michelangelo can tell literally from, you know, from uh, 20 years of lying down and painting it, is huge, it is corrupt, it is uh, opposed to his beloved home city of Florence more often than not. Uh, so he's got real problems with the church hierarchy, and if he is threatening, for example, to reveal something that he has found out about uh, Julius II, the Della Rovere uh, Pope, who was also known as Il Papa Terrabile, the terrible Pope, um, <laughs> not be, meaning I, I terrible at being Pope, but, one, actually. but, um, uh, but uh, a terror, like you'd get on the wrong side of him, and he would, he was sort of, um, uh, make your life a miserable living he hell. He was the Harry Khan of Popes? He was the Harry, or the Rahm Emanuel of Popes, um, <laughs> to keep our, our Judaizing um, uh, tendencies going. But he, he may have uh, found stuff out about the Della Riveres, or found something out about the, the, the Curia, and this letter would be, if you don't tell me, I'm going to paint it into the Last Judgment, and you'll never find it. Now, uh, one thing that sort of militates against this being a conspiracy corner story is that the Vatican, of course, is not snapped up the opportunity to pay 100,000 euros to get the stolen documents back. So what could we imagine if we were to uh, reconfigure this story to be a trigger for a more uh, enjoyable modern-day story? What 
sort of revelation would uh, lead uh, the Vatican to immediately want to uh, purchase the papers back, and how could our player characters get into trouble getting in the middle of that? I think, I mean, it's fun to sort of ask why they would not pay the ransom first. I mean, the two reasons would be they know who these kidnappers are, and they def- and they don't want to either look weak in front of them, or they don't want to give those specific guys 100,000 euros. And so that might be a sort of, um, a, a, you know, just a political grudge, or it might be, you know, the, that's the last thing that they'll need to summon uh, Astaroth in the, you know, uh, Viminal Hill, or it might be a uh, a thing where they're stupidly slow rolling it, like the way that the conspiratorial masterminds always do in these games. Um, no, no, we have to make it look like we're doing everything legally through the gendarmerie. Well, meanwhile, we've got our uh, secret um, uh, our secret order of badass um, uh, assassin Jesuits running around trying to steal the the letters back, and we're going to just use the gendarmerie to find these guys. I, th- I think maybe that's the reason that they're not just paying the 100000 because they want to get to these guys and find out what else they know and find out what else they've got in their big box. Because obviously, if they had access to these two letters, they may have had access to all kinds of stuff. So the, the plot hook here is that you are the investigators who are trying to find the guys with the documents in order to recover the whole uh, thing, including the really secret stuff, and, and shut them down. Right. And you might be the the, the the perfectly nice Italian gendarmerie and be trapped between two sides, the secret curia and the uh, and the uh, guys who've got these dark secrets and are up to stuff. Or you might be the secret curia if you want to be, you know, all, uh, you know, uh, go-go Pope uh, Francis uh, type guys and um, and hunting stuff down for the for the Pope. And that might include, you know, hunting down not just Gnostics, but also you know, vampires or, or goetic demon summoners or, or aliens or whatever. Right, because Michelangelo was sneaking little details into the Sistine Chapel uh, to annoy the Pope who was yelling in his ear, some of those things could reveal a current-day thing that connects to it. So uh, one of the images could be the image of a multi-billionaire uh, Italian media conglomerate head uh, who uh, looks exactly the same as this little tiny figure somewhere in the sketch mm-hmm. that um, Michelangelo was going to put on the chapel and then was uh, ordered to erase. And it's like, oh, well, uh, hmm, it's weird that he's still alive and there's vampires. Hmm, I wonder what the deal is. Or, uh, you know, it could be, uh, you know, his sketch of an alien uh, craft and uh, that could lead you into your uh, your reptoid plot line or uh, what have you. Yeah. Or, obviously, there could be... Um any number of things that Michelangelo stumbled upon, either in the Medici library or with access to the Vatican, that he's threatening to reveal. And those might just be sort of um, like that there's a, a, a ghoul cult underneath Rome, right? Because that's where he finds out about all these human corpses. If Michelangelo has been indoctrinated into the ghoul cult from youth, that might explain you know, why, first of all, why his back doesn't give out lying, <laughs> lying there for 20 years. But also, it explains his un, unnatural gifts for human anatomy, uh, because he's, he's got the, this ghoul knowledge and it, hunting he knows down. knows it all inside out. Exactly. But the ghoul cult may have infiltrated, uh, the Vatican just like it's infiltrated everything else in Italy. And so therefore, our heroes begin by doing, uh, the Pope's bidding. And now they're like, oh, the Pope's from Argentina. He's like literally the only guy we can trust because everyone else here may be ghoul blooded and may be part of this um uh 
this uh, the, the, this long-standing uh, cannibal conspiracy. And you can um, you can have all manner of fun with just ghouls, cannibals, and uh, the passage from death to life back and forth uh, with uh, plenty of art history tacked onto that as well. Well, I suppose if we're going to do this, we're going to have to find some other evidence for Michelangelo's ghoul cultism, and I don't imagine we'll find that. Well, not unless you count his face on St. Bartholomew's body being skinned alive. Uh, <laughs> that might more. Uh, imply something. Uh, on the, he put, paints all these martyrdoms of the various saints up there on the ceiling, and St. Bartholomew is famously being skinned, uh, which is a obvious reference to anatomiz anatomization and also to uh, ghoul cults and whose face turns up on St. Bartholomew but his. He also is on the severed head of Holofernes who is uh, beheaded by Judith and so the presence of his severed head out there um, uh, looming, not looming so much, but peeking out of the Sistine Chapel maybe ties us into that head cult that we talked about uh, in the previous time with Henri of Navarre. Well, that could also explain the, the prevalence of those images of saints being tortured in uh, uh, the church at the time, that they may be there to distract ghouls, right? If they're, if they're coming boiling up from the catacombs into your sanctuary, you buy a crucial couple of moments of time as they're mesmerized by these uh, images, and that lets you get to safety and protect yourself from the ghouls or to grab your anti-ghoul amulet. Or you just watch uh, and see which of your parishioners can't look away. There you and go. You that make would a identify note. members of the ghoul cult. So right. that could, that could uh, answer a big sort of art historical mystery. Uh, well, I think we've uh, squeezed uh, lots of uh, juice out of this little uh, news story so we can uh, creep out of the conspiracy corner uh, once more and declare this podcast crept out of as well. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. OdysseyCon 15. The Small Folk. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Sustain our empire by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.com. Join the hallowed ranks of returning patrons like Rick Neal. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or ransom demand by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. Catch us both at CthulhuCon in Portland, Oregon. April 25th and 26th. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.